0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Rice Show, enunciate. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, I have to tell you, there's so much going on, it's been very difficult to try to keep track of it all. And to try to explain it in a way that it makes some sense, because some of it, quite frankly, doesn't make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, if I were dependent, my life, my future and my hope were dependent on what's going on in Washington, I would be despairing right about now. Fortunately, my hope does not lie anywhere near Washington, D.C., for that matter, near terra firma. But that's a whole nother... Uh, subject: I do want to try to bring uh, bring you up to date on some of the things that are happening, and uh, make some sense of them. We'll make the effort. Also, today we're going to talk with Joshua Chattra. He's the author. Uh, he's a PhD. He's the author, I should say, co-author of Apologetics at the Cross: An Introduction for Christian Witness. This is a serious book on apologetics and why it's important for us. Uh, to understand um, the call for uh, for all of us to engage in it, so we'll talk with him uh, later this hour. Well, President Trump warned the Kremlin today not to retaliate against any u s strike on Syria in the aftermath of that deadly chemical weapons attack that was orchestrated by the Assad regime at least that 's what we think. Uh, In a moving tweet, Trump referred to Syrian President Bashar Assad as a gas-killing animal. That's a quote. He rebuked Russia for being partners uh, with a Middle East strongman. Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria, Trump wrote. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming. um, Nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it end quote. Well, Trump's comments uh, follow remarks from Russian ambassador to Lebanon, who reportedly Uh, told uh, a Hezbollah television station that Russia could shoot down American missiles fired at Syrian government targets. If there is a strike by the Americans, then the missiles will be uh, downed and even the sources from which the missiles were fired. That's a quote from Ambassador Alexander Zaisipkin, again, speaking to Hezbollah's Al Manor television station. Well, the president is... um, scrapping plans to travel this week to a summit in South America due to the situation in Syria, the White House said on Tuesday. And on Monday, he called the weekend chemical attack in Syria atrocious and said the United States will make major decisions about its response. And he said at that time, within uh, 24 to 48 hours. Uh, We're not sure at this point what options will be selected. Well, Saturday's suspected poison gas attack took place in a rebel-held town near Damascus. Uh, this was during a resumed offensive by Syrian government forces after the collapse of a truce. Syrian activists, rescuers and medics said the attack in Duma killed at least 40 people with families found suffocated in their houses and shelters. Well, in a series of other tweets on Wednesday, the president lamented the state of the U.S. relationship with Russia and blasted special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation as corrupt. Not that uh, the two are directly related, but you get the uh, the connection. In another tweet, he argued his administration is doing things that nobody thought possible despite the never-ending and corrupt Russia investigation, which takes tremendous time and focus. No collusion or obstruction other uh, than I fight back. So now they do the unthinkable and raid a lawyer's office for information BAD, um, in all caps and an exclamation point. Well, in uh, in view of the uh, threats of possible retaliation or some sort of response in Syria— The Daily Mail was reminding us that Russia possesses a deadly S-400 anti-aircraft missile ring of steel. It protects Assad. And the United States is fearful that the network of Russian air defense that can shoot down 80 planes at once from 248 miles away and is one of the most feared weapons in the world is in place there um, in the area that uh, is currently being uh, threatened. Russia has vowed to shoot down any U.S. missile aimed at Syria using its lethal anti-aircraft system amid mounting tensions. Syrian dictator Bashar Assad's regime is protected by a fearsome S-400 defense missiles and a ring of steel, as it's called, around the country provided by the Kremlin. The most advanced of Russia's uh, systems is designed to destroy aircraft, crews, and ballistic missiles, including medium range missiles, can also be used against ground objectives uh, objectives rather, according to Russia. The S- 400 was first deployed to Syria in 2015, and with its 248-mile uh, range, it's capable of providing an air cover umbrella across the majority of Syria. It's capable of shooting down up to 80 targets simultaneously, and said to be able to travel more than 10,000 miles per hour. Now, Russia is also hoping to sell the system to Iran and Turkey, and a successful demonstration against American hardware would only help sell, sell rather, the $400 million per unit system. Russia initially deployed the S-400. 400 to its uh, base in Syria to deter Turkey when the two nations were on the verge of a conflict after the Turkish jet downed a Russian bomber on the Syrian border in November of 2015, you might recall. Well, sources say it's likely any attack by the United States, Britain, France, uh, on Syria would be carried out from a safe enough distance to avoid planes being shot down. But the S-400 is also deployed widely in Russia. When it was uh, deployed, uh, a Kremlin spokesman said the main task of the anti-aircraft missile uh, troops of the Russian Aerospace Forces is air defense and protecting vital state, military, industry, and energy facilities, as well as the armed forces, troops, and transport communications from aerospace attacks. Well, fears about this system arising after Moscow's ambassador to Lebanon uh, this morning, as I mentioned earlier, said any U.S. rockets fired at Syria would be shot down and the launch sites targeted. The President of the United States responded with an incendiary tweet, I won't repeat, he was referring to the uh, poison gas attack that took place in Syria. So things are escalating there. It's not altogether clear what the United States or others, um, the UK or France are likely to do in that, um, In that arena. Uh, But there certainly is a great deal of concern about the potential for escalating violence there. Now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about uh, some of the questions that are emerging from the FBI raid on the Trump, uh, the president's attorney. He's actually been associated with the president for about a decade, but we'll talk about uh, some of the questions that have emerged. Also, later this program, this hour, we'll talk with Joshua Chatra. He's a an, uh, Ph.D. and co-author of Apologetics at the Cross, An Introduction for Christian Witness. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Twenty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also, doctor Joshua Chattraw will join us later this hour. Apologetics at the cross, an introduction for Christian. Witness. Well, the FBI raid on the office and home of President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, raises constitutional concerns and issues about the future of key Justice Department officials, including the Attorney General and the special counsel. Here are some questions that have been posed that we might consider uh, as we observe what's happening there, not really knowing enough to know whether or not it's warranted or crosses the line. Um, I did uh, read um, uh, Alan Dershowitz wrote a piece on that very subject and his concerns about what's Happened, But we'll get into that uh, if time permits. Well, the first question, what was the FBI looking for? We're hearing some clarity on that now. Apparently, um, uh, documents related to the infamous 2005 Access Hollywood tape featuring the president's vulgar comments about women uh, were being sought during that raid. Um, and uh, uh, the president's personal attorney uh, apparently has some of that information. The search was aimed at obtaining evidence that Michael Cohen attempted to suppress harmful material about uh, candidate Trump ahead of the 2016 presidential election. Multiple people briefed on the warrant reportedly claimed. Well, FBA agents were reportedly seeking records regarding payments he also made, or uh, allegedly made, to pornographic movie star Stormy Daniels and another Playboy model. And this is the attorney, the president has denied uh, knowing anything about or participating in that. Search warrants were issued uh, for documents related to uh, $150,000 payments to one, $130,000 payments to another. Um, There apparently is nothing to the Russia investigation, so now Special Counsel Robert Mueller, this is a quote from Peter Flaherty, president of the National Legal and Policy Center. Uh, So now uh, Robert Mueller has to uh, go after this tawdry matter, Uh, That is way beyond his mandate. Well, the payment um, to these two could be construed as an illegal in kind campaign contribution. Some legal observers say coming as it did shortly before the 2016 election. Another question. Is What does this mean for that investigation, for uh, Robert Mueller's investigation? Well, Rosenstein named Mr. Mueller uh, after Sessions recused himself to investigate the Russian matter, possible collusion between Moscow and the Trump campaign. This has nothing to do with Russian collusion, Uh, says uh, one observer. It looks like a sign that Mueller wants an independent Justice Department. Uh, Mueller referred information to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. But the special counsel still instigated the matter and likely will work in cooperation operation with a New York federal prosecutor. The investigation is out of control, Mr. Flaherty suggests. This is beyond political appearance. This is a constitutional crisis challenging the executive authority of the president. The president should do his duty fire Mueller. Well, there's a lot of back and forth on whether or not that should or should not be the case. Another question, what about attorney-client privilege? And again, I'll quote Alan Dershowitz in a moment, but Trump tweeted Tuesday that attorney-client privilege is dead. Is that an overstatement or is that something That should concern uh, not only um, potential clients, but attorneys as well. Communications between an attorney and a client have broad protection, but it's not absolute. The privilege applies to a lawyer and a client no matter what. If police are investigating a lawyer, it's not a kick down the door investigation to see what you can find. If, for example, a lawyer and client plotted payments that would violate campaign finance laws, that would be a crime for both parties. A judge issued a warrant in this case because, on the basis of probable cause, a crime was committed. But the law would prevent a fishing expedition. Documents are divided into communication related to the potential crime outlined in the warrant and other, which um, prosecutors would not have access to documents that aren't related to the warrant would have to be returned. Now what does this mean for Jeff Sessions' future? Because he's once again in the president's crosshairs as one can imagine. Well, Trump was again critical of the attorney general Monday evening for recusing himself from the matter in the first place, saying the attorney general made a terrible mistake. We've heard him say it over and over again. We don't need to repeat that part of it. Uh, McCarthy initially opposed Sessions' recusal primarily for its timing, asserting that at the time the Russian probe was a counterintelligence matter, but McCarthy said a recusal would have been appropriate when matters close to the Trump campaign emerged since Sessions was part of the campaign. Well, McCarthy said, and I quote, as I said, recusal at that time was a mistake. But for the president to say Sessions should never recuse himself as ridiculous. I'm not a critic of Sessions on this. So he's arguing that it was appropriate. But that's another question. And finally, how long for, uh, for this interim U.S. attorney? Well, Sessions isn't the only one recusing himself. Jeffrey Berman, the interim U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, recused himself from the decision on the FBI raid. Uh, Trump reportedly has planned to formally nominate Berman to a position or to that position. Sessions appointed Berman and 16 other U.S. attorneys on an interim basis in January. And so that has a uh, bearing on what's likely to happen uh, next, well, as I mentioned, Alan Dershowitz suggests that why the uh, the FBI raid on Trump's lawyer hurts all of us in an editorial, rights or in a column, I should say. Many TV pundits are telling viewers not to worry about the government's intrusion into possible lawyer-client privileged communications between President Trump, rather, and his lawyer Michael Cohen. The pundits say that since prosecutors won't get to see or use any privileged material taken when FBI agents raided and searched Cohen's uh, law office, home, and hotel Monday, the intrusion. Intrusion will not be a problem. This is because prosecutors and FBI agents create firewalls and taint teams to preclude privileged information from being used against the client in a criminal case. But this analysis completely misses Dershowitz's rights, misses the point, and ignores the distinction between the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution on the one hand and the Fourth and Sixth Amendments on the other. Fifth Amendment is an exclusionary rule. By its terms, it prevents material obtained in violation of the privilege of self-incrimination from being. Being used to incriminate a defendant, that is, to convict him or her of a crime. But the Fourth and Sixth Amendment provide far broader protections. They prohibit government officials from, in any way, intruding on the privacy of lawyer client confidential rights. Of citizens, In other words, if the government in, improperly seizes private or privileged material, the violation has already occurred, even if the government never uses the material from the person from whom it was seized. Not surprisingly, therefore, firewalls and taint teams were developed in the context of the Fifth Amendment, not the Fourth or the Sixth Amendments. Remember who comprises the firewall and taints terms, or rather taints teams. Other FBI agents, prosecutors, and government officials who have no right under the Fourth and Sixth Amendment even to see private or confidential materials, regardless of whether it is ever used against a defendant. The very fact that this material is seen or read by a government official constitutes a core violation. It would be the same if the government surreptitiously recorded a uh, confession of a uh, penitent to a priest or a description of symptoms by a patient to a doctor or a discussion between a husband and a wife of their private life. The government simply has no right to this material, whether it ever uses it against the penitent or the uh, patient or the spouse in a criminal case. So let's not dismiss the potential violation of the rights of Michael Cohen and the President Trump. If it turns out that the that included among the materials seized by the government in the raid were private or confidential information or documents. I won't go on, but he um Continues, But this really highlights the difficulty of, first of all, the material having been seized and the use of material and whether or not the fact that some potentially uh, confidential and private information between uh, lawyer and client uh, might be caught up in all of this may make uh, the case, whatever it may be, uh, moot moving forward. So it is, uh, to, um, to put it in a word, it is a mess. And uh, we'll certainly try to continue to, to follow the story as it continues. Um, Moves forward. Meanwhile, Gary Bauer had an interesting observation. He writes that given what we still don't know at at this time, let me make a few comments about what I do know is burning in the hearts of the 63 million people who voted for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. When news broke that Hillary Clinton had been putting classified information on a private, unsecured server and on other devices, making the information vulnerable to foreign capture, the country was shocked. It quickly became apparent that Hillary Clinton and the people around her were engaged in the destruction of evidence. Uh, And then he gives some examples. Um, and points out that there's even more. Um, all during this shell game, not once did the FBI raid any residents owned by the Clintons or their attorneys. If they had done so, I guarantee you there would have been a huge outcry from civil libertarians and their media allies. Not only did the Justice Department and the FBI guarantee that they did not violate the sacrosanct legal principle of attorney-client privilege, they allowed Clinton to get away with designating two of her top aides, subjects of the investigation, as her attorneys. As a result, they could not be questioned about their knowledge of Clinton's mishandling of classic. We know that while all this was going on, there was a cadre of agents at the FBI who believed Clinton would be the next president, and they did their best to ensure that she and their careers were protected. We know fired FBI Director James Comey wrote his exoneration memo before Clinton was interviewed. We know her interview was a complete joke, given that it was not recorded, nor was it conducted under oath. We know the Attorney General violated ethical standards when she met on a private uh, airport tarmac with the spouse of the investigation's target. During all of this, the FBI never went to court to get a wiretap on Hillary Clinton or her associates to see if they were engaged in obstruction of justice. Mueller's original charge was to investigate Russia's meddling in our elections. So far, he has found no evidence involving Donald Trump. And let me turn the page here and collusion with the Russians. There is more circumstantial evidence that the Clinton campaign colluded with Russia. Yet it is clear that Mueller is not looking into anything involving Hillary Clinton. Well, the point, as far as I'm concerned, is that if there is a double standard and I don't care who benefits and who uh, is most damaged by a double standard, it is not healthy for the, the republic. Uh, if, in fact, that is the case, uh, if this is a, a witch hunt, if there are standards being applied to one group based on their political affiliations, and um, and ideology and a different standard applied to others. Uh, This is not healthy for the republic. And uh, we are all in danger of the fallout, uh, if in fact, this moves forward. So that's my main concern in this situation. And it appears to me that there is a double standard. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, we are back 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Apologetics at the Cross, which is the book we're going to be talking about for the next uh, short while, presents the biblical and historical foundations of apologetics. And that's a big word, and it can sometimes be frightening. I'm not an apologist. It sounds too formal. But the book explores various contemporary methods for approaching apologetics, gives practical guidance on how-to chapters that feature many real-life illustrations that you and I can actually live with. It pays special attention to the attitude and posture of the apologist, and Christian's Christians and equips Christians to engage skeptics with the heart as well as the mind. It's a practical book that I think we will find very useful if we take our faith seriously. Well, my next guest is Dr. Joshua Chatra. He serves as executive director of the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement and as an associate professor of theology and apologetics at Liberty University. He joins us today to talk about the book he co-authored along with uh, Mark Allen. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin by defining apologetics, because for the person who does not have a background in theological training, that that seems like a big word and might intimidate people from just sharing their faith in an effective way.
2: Yeah, well, apologetics is really trying to help people to do just that, to share their faith. And it's if you think about... Uh, If you've grown up in church, if you're a Christian listening to this, you you have beliefs. and, And these are what we could call what questions. You know, what is Christianity? And you could hopefully explain that. But apologetics is really telling people why you believe that or why they should believe that. So it's giving the whys of the gospel, the whys of Christianity.
1: And you point to 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So the word apologetics really is found in that scripture. It's an answer or a defense for one's faith.
2: That's right. Yeah yeah, and, and one of the things about First Peter is oftentimes people say, first Peter there in first Peter three fifteen gives this kind of proof text for apologetics. And I would say, in some sense it does. but sometimes we ignore kind of the context of mm-hmm. first Peter. And so here you have in first Peter, a persecuted church. And uh, it seems like kind of the culture around them is against them. And you might think you know Peter's advice to them is to kind of come out swinging, but most most of the book is about how you would live a different life a life that that people around you who aren't believers are going to ask you hey hey what's going on how can you suffer so well how how come even though you're being persecuted you're respectful to others and so that's kind of the context of 1 Peter 3:15 because they, when when you when when they ask that be ready to give a defense but do it with gentleness and respect and so even how sometimes people think of apologetics, they think of maybe like a, a kind of a, a debate or a boxing match or something like this, kind of metaphorically speaking. But first Peter is, is actually, if you read that passage in context, I think it, it says something about our tone and our posture. Towards, towards people we disagree with.
1: You write that Peter sets the tone for apologetic conversations by giving a persecuted community hope and by encouraging them to endure with joy. We don't often think about joy in the context of sharing our, our faith in a, a community, in a culture that is opposed to our faith.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think sometimes when, uh, you know, I work with students, I train pastors, I train people going to the ministry, and I think sometimes when they take my classes or we talk to them about the book, they're thinking okay this is we've seen this this is this is a debate this is you know it's almost like you know two people going up there and, and being mad at each other but but really, I think a, a lot of, of of apologetics is not only what we say but how we say mm-hmm. it and and that seems to actually be the focus there in, in how we say it with gentleness and respect.
1: You um, and your co-author share your own stories with regard to the the notion of the practice, if you will, of apologetics. And you begin in telling your story. Apologetics is irrelevant—at least that's what I used to think. Uh, tell us yeah. a bit of your story. Yeah,
2: well, I, I was a I was a Christian, and I was I was actually at a state a state university. I was playing soccer, and I was the only Christian on the team, and. So I would uh, I would just kind of share my faith, and that's that's what I did. And kind of in the culture, I mean, most people didn't accept that, but they weren't necessarily hostile. It was just kind of like, hey, that's uh, you know, not 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 really for me kind of thing. Um, and it, it was really it was really when when I I actually took a a class with a with a professor who was kind of skeptical towards the New Testament that I began to think, oh my goodness, he's raising questions, and I don't even know how to answer these questions. Uh, and I've I've grown up in church, and and so I began to uh, k- kind of be frustrated that I haven't even heard these questions asked. I didn't know these were even issues that people raised, and so that that kind of sent me on a journey to kind of figure some things out. And uh, and then and then later on, when I got into ministry, I realized, oh goodness, these are some of the same questions that people uh, in the pews, these are Christians, are actually asking, uh, not only for themselves, but for the people they're interacting mm-hmm. with. So. So it started off with me really just kind of really fighting for my own faith and then, and then getting into ministry, realizing that, Oh goodness, this is, this is, this is real life. And it wasn't just for me. It, it's apparently for, for lots of other people and their kids and their grandkids and, uh, people they love and want to
1: help. You make the point that our world has changed not only on the streets and in the halls of academia, but also in the pews of the church, Uh, and that the situation in the West has changed drastically since the days of Calvin, for example, and that doubt of that day existed within a societal framework of belief. Things have changed for us in the 21st century. Are our challenges unique uh, in terms of how we share our faith in uh, in an environment where belief is not simply accepted and doubt is is uh, a subject, but not outside of the context of a belief in God.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things we're doing there is we're picking up on a philosopher, important philosopher, he's a Christian by the name of Charles Taylor. And one of the things that Charles Taylor says in a, in a big book called A Secular Age is, he's really asking the question, he's saying, look, in, in the year 1500 or so in the West, it was almost unheard of not to believe in God. And and now he's saying shift that 500 years later. And in some, especially in some sectors now, some of the viewers might not feel, uh, some of the listeners might not feel like this in, in kind of their area, but in a lot of, in, in a lot of different kind of um, cultures or different types of cultures, especially in academic culture and universities in the West. Now it's, 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 it's reversed. Now it's for many, it's the assumption that there is no God. And so the assumptions have changed and, in his book, in Taylor's book, he's really tracing how this happened. But part of his point is now that he, now that we're in this kind of situation, we have this fragilized faith, which, which means even if you're a believer, uh, in, in many cases, it's even the believers that have doubts. And But he says it's actually the other – it's also on the other foot too. A lot of uh, so-called atheists or skeptics, they actually have some doubts themselves about their atheism. And so he's saying, hey, this is also this is a challenge for the church, but there's also these kind of uh, these points, these pressure points, even with atheists and unbelievers where, where they have some doubts about their their unbelief that you can kind of press in on. I, I think one of the things that another thing that I would say is, is unique is, you know, if you, if you actually go back and you look historically at the early church, uh, th- there's some similarities here. Uh, if you mm-hmm. go back, you know, bef- before, you know, 500 years ago, Calvin, that's Reformation. But if you go to the early church, one of the things that you see is you, you're in a pluralistic society where there's lots of people believing different things. You have early Christians who are actually, uh, they're seen as weird and, sh- and strange because of their ethics. And and when, when you read that you're kind of thinking oh wow well that that we're feeling some of that in the West now because of some of the ethics that, that Christians have we're seen as kind of weird but but one of the things that's actually different um, between so there's some similarities but one of the things that's different is the early church never held power at that point they were the newcomers they were these kind of new people on the scene they were making the argument that no 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 we're not newcomers because this is really a, an old story uh, that started with um uh, creation, and this is the God who created the world, and we see this in the nation of Israel. But, but in some se- sense, they were seen as the new kids on the block. But now in the West, the church is seen as, well, Well, they're kind of been around, and they've held power, and the story is, you know, they've, they've abused power. And so one, one, one of the challenges for the church, one of the challenges for Christians today in apologetics is now we don't just have to say this is true, but in a kind of a unique way, we have to make the argument that Christianity is good and beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so
2: that's a unique challenge for us today.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book Apologetics at the Cross, an introduction for Christian witness. Joshua Chatra, Ph.D., is our guest. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Joshua Chatra, he's the co-author of Apologetics at the Cross, An Introduction for Christian Witness. Now, the book is divided into three parts. First, the foundation uh, for apologetics at the cross, a theological structure for apologetics at the cross, and the practice of apologetics at the cross. Describe who the book is written for and how the structure walks us through the process of understanding what apologetics is. Is and how we can apply it to our walk and our attempt to influence our culture.
2: Yeah, well, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what's changed in culture. Mm-hmm. And, and to sum some of that up and to tie it into to your question is one of the things that changed is uh, we find ourselves in, in trying to have conversations with our neighbors. And uh, oftentimes, even to get in a conversation, we have to know some kind of basic things about you know their assumptions and, and some of the objections they're going to have, and so really the the book was written because uh, Mark and I, as we were as we were teaching students and we were uh, working with with various churches, we we realized that kind of the way people were were, were being trained to to share and talk to talk to their neighbors. Was either one of kind of two extremes. One was okay. Uh, here's the gospel. Simply share the gospel. But th- there there wasn't a lot of thought about okay how to how to how to talk to to people with where they're at. How do you contextualize this? Um, how do you give some arguments? I, the the other side of it was sometimes sometimes the books that we were picking up and that that students were required to read was kind of this on this high end academic philosophy and it was very difficult for them to translate into this kind of conversations and so we really wrote the book for people who wanted to have conversations we wanted to know something about kind of the, the tradition and history and and how this is biblical and how this has been done before. But then, as the foundation, that's the first part of the book. But then, two, how does how do you do this as the church? How, how does the church? What are some kind of um, theological practical points that come from the gospel itself? Stuff like humility, stuff like not only uh, giving an apologetic through word, but giving one through deed and how we serve others and. And and these types of things. So so we needed some kind of theological implications for how to do this. And then the last part it's is really practical, which is is you know how do you actually have these conversations? What's a model for that that you can use to kind of think through these things? And then what are we have about we have a, in one of the last chapters eight of the most common objections uh, that we hear. And so we have kind of a model of, that people can read through and see. Yeah, I, I've heard that people raise that. How can I learn how to how to better respond to that? And then the final chapter is how to make a case for Christianity. So how to go about actually? Uh, and and we again we give a model for this. But but how do you make a positive case um, uh, for the gospel? And and we end on I think you know one of the strongest positive uh, kind of cases we have, which is for the resurrection itself.
1: Now in the. Um... In the chapters, in the early chapters of the book, you um, lay out, as you mentioned, the biblical foundation for apologetics. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we uh, we have embraced the gospel, we believe what the scriptures say. How well generally equipped do you think we are for uh, engaging in uh, sharing with our neighbors? Are we being well equipped by the church, or uh, do we need to supplement what we're getting, or are we not addressing the why questions at all?
2: Well, that's <laughs> a that's a tough question because it kind of depends, um, and so we have to paint in such broad with such broad brushstrokes uh, to reply to that. But I would say, so kind of with that caveat, I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're really even at a seminary level. So I'm not even quite sure that pastors are getting what they need on this level. I think oftentimes in seminaries we're being taught how to how to how to preach, um, how to do some basic church leadership stuff. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't. I think we've got some work to do, even in training pastors. And to, so, I think maybe that's actually where it would, would probably we can do better is, is pastors can jump in this. But but sometimes, and a lot of times, um, these things can bubble up through through leaders within the church who are doing this, even if the even if pastors and um, you know vocational pastors aren't. I think. Uh, we need key leaders within the church who say, yeah, you know what, we got to do better here. And we've got to think through how to actually address the questions our young people have, uh, address the questions people have in our community. Um, not, not to argue some way, someone into the kingdom, mm-hmm. but really to build a bridge to the gospel. That's what this is about. That's why the book's called Apologetics of the Cross. It's not about winning an argument. It's about winning a person over. So that they might, so that, so they might uh, listen to the gospel, that they might take the, ser- the gospel seriously. That's the power of God for salvation, not our arguments, not simply our reasons, but reasons often open the door so that we can have that gospel conversation.
1: You liken the structure of the book as uh, to building an apologetics house. You start with the foundation, uh, the biblical foundation, uh, then you move on to the walls and it, the uh, and exterior for uh, the apologetics house, so that we, we kind of build a structure that equips us uh, to speak to our neighbors in a way that's that's effective.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was just, uh, that picture kind of gives gives readers at the very beginning this kind of, you know, pathway or, or just a, a mental image of, of what we're doing. And and especially at the beginning, because, it, you know, we spent a couple chapters just saying, hey, what's, What's going on in the Bible? And one of the things we 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 try to draw out there is that the Bible has all of these types of apologetic arguments, in ways we we might not even normally think about. And one of the things one of the things that the Bible does is it's it's so contextual to its different situations. And so what I mean by contextual is that um, it uses language from that culture that people would understand, and so it 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 it, it meets people where they're at. And then it kind of brings them back to truth and says, hey, this is, this is why this is actually good for you. This is why you actually need this. And, and, and one of the reasons we use that kind of metaphor of fil- building a foundation first is to, to be able to actually come back to Scripture and see this is actually something the Bible does. This is not something foreign to the Bible. This is not something you have to, you know, you know tack on to Scripture. But this is actually something you see Scripture doing in its own context, in its own historical context. Um, when it was written.
1: If we take um, the call to apologetics more seriously, if we become better at understanding and contextualizing that call and how we engage our neighbors, what impact do you think that's going to have uh, the church on the culture and ultimately the gospel in the world?
2: Yeah, well, obviously, um, uh, even as we do apologetics, we know that this is something, um, this is, this is, something of God, conversion is of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're, we're uh, so it's, this is not like apologetics is not separate from, from prayer and fasting and, and, and worship. And, and so it should be kind of part and parcel of the discipleship. And so even as we go out there, as Paul did, for instance, in Acts 17 and uh, in, in his letters, and, and we, we see Peter in Acts two, we see this all across with the apostles in the new Testament. This is something that they're doing and reasoning with people but we also see this is the the work of the Spirit,
3: mm-hmm. and this
2: is, and even through our arguments, it's us praying that the Spirit will work. So I answer like that just to say that you know, um, we, don't know. Uh, we don't know, we don't know. We're we believe at at the same time that if we're going to meet the challenges of, of of today and the future, then we've actually called. We're called to not only pray, but we're called to actually think and use the minds that God gave us to engage people. So I would say the call is to be faithful, and, to, and faithfulness means uh, understanding the gospel, understanding the culture, being able to build bridges through apologetics, and then praying that the Lord will work, and of course, leaving the results up to, up to God.
1: Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled Apologetics at the Cross, An Introduction for Christian Witness. The book is published by Zondervan. Dr. Chatra, thank you so much for talking with us today. Okay, thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it very much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. In this hour, we're going to share conversations I had with a couple of Christian schools in our community who are offering tuition discounts. We'll hear from North Clackamas Christian and Valor Christian School. Uh that's later in this hour. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican from Wisconsin, announced today that he is not going to seek re-election in November. He's not resigning. He's going to serve out his term, but that will be it. It's a move that ends the nearly two decades career in Congress, comes as the GOP girds for a pretty tough fight to keep control of the House this year. I think Ryan makes 25 Republicans who have said they are not uh, they're not continuing on. Ryan said in a press conference after meeting with House lawmakers that his primary motivation was so he could spend more time with his wife and children whom he said um, didn't uh, want to remember him as a weekend dad. If I am here for one more term, my kids will only ever have known me as a weekend dad. I just can't let that happen, he said. Well, Ryan, who was first elected to Congress in 1998, said he believes Congress has achieved a heck of a lot, that's a quote, under his leadership as Speaker since 2015. You all know I did not seek this job. I, looked, I took it reluctantly, but I have given this job everything I have. He added that he has no regrets. Well, his decision not to seek reelection election him playing a key role in passing this uh, last year's tax reform bill, an issue close to his heart, and something he said he's uh, dedicated his career to. But Ryan has had a rocky relationship with the president and condemned Trump's more controversial moves on a number of occasions during the campaign. Axios reported that Ryan's decision was motivated partly by by the president, who has reportedly made uh, the job frustrating for Ryan. Well, last month, uh, President Trump slammed Congress over the $1.3 trillion spending bill, which Ryan played a key role in crafting over its failure to include funding for Trump's border wall and a fix for the Obama era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. But the two have found common cause on health care, tax reform, and increasing funding for the military. The latter was uh, hailed by both as a big win in the omnibus bill. Well, today, Ryan said that increasing defense spending and the reform of the tax code were his two biggest achievements. I th- see these, rather, as lasting victories that make this country more prosperous and more secure for decades to come. Well, earlier in the day, the president tr- uh, tweeted that uh, Ryan leaves a legacy of achievement that nobody can question. Well, his counterpart in the Senate, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, said Ryan's legacy would be that of a transformational conservative leader, citing tax reform and security uh, increasing. Uh, security increased uh, funding for Uh, for the military. That results have been beyond impressive, McConnell went on to say, capping off a remarkable 20-year career in Congress. Uh, Paul's speakership has yielded one signature accomplishment after another for his conference, his constituents in his beloved home state of Wisconsin, and the American people. Well, despite our differences, I commend our steadfast commitment to our country, Pelosi said in a statement during his final months. Democrats are hopeful that he joins us to work constructively to advance better futures for all Americans. While well, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee said that Ryan's retirement was a sign of defeat for Republicans in November, saying Speaker Ryan sees what is coming in November and is calling it quits rather than standing behind a House Republican agenda to increase health care costs for middle class families while slashing Social Security and Medicare, which, by the way, he didn't advocate, to pay for his handouts to the richest and largest corporations. Tyler Law speaking on their behalf. Unfortunately, for the many vulnerable House Republicans that Paul Ryan is abandoning, he went on to say, His historically unpopular and failed policies uh, will hang uh, over the re-elections like a dark cloud. Well, Ryan ran in 2012 as uh, GOP presidential nominee Mitt Romney's running mate. He's gained a reputation over the years as a wonkish figure with a focus on limited government and balanced budgets. He also played a central role in the push to repeal and replace Obamacare, passing numerous bills to defund and replace the controversial 2010 law. The most significant effort to repeal the law fell short in the Senate last summer. Well, Ryan's decision comes ahead of a tough midterm election cycle for House Republicans, who are expected to struggle to keep control of the chamber in the face of enthused Democratic opposition. Polls suggest Democrats are likely to pick up the gavel. And Ryan said that uh, the midterms were not a factor in his thinking, but one GOP insider told Axios that his move was a um, a tectonic shift ahead of November. This is going to make every Republican donor believe the House can't be held, the Republican said. The move also ignites the race to potentially succeed Ryan should Republicans hold the House in November. House Majority Whip Steve Scalise and GOP Majority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy are both mentioned as possibilities. And that uh, that battle will begin in earnest. Well, essentially, the moment after the announcement was made by the current speaker, the jockeying to become the next House Speaker began even before its current occupant uh, announced that he uh, plans to retire in January. But that maneuvering is playing out inside both the Democratic and Republican conferences uh, more boldly now because both parties are also competing for control of the House in the 2018 elections. Well, the leading contender, as I mentioned, on the Republican side is Representative Kevin McCarthy. He's out of California. The current House Majority Leader, he's 53 years old, has rocketed up the congressional ladder, fueled by a mix of personal charm, political savvy and nonstop work. He's run for speaker before, you might recall, in 2015, after then House Speaker John Boehner announced his retirement, only to drop out in a surprise move just moments before the vote. He had apparently lost some support and decided to uh, save himself the humiliation of having uh, too few um, supporters. Next in line is Louisiana Representative Steve Scalise, currently the House Majority Whip, the number 3 GOP post. He's 52 years old. He moved into the national spotlight last summer after he was nearly killed during a shooting at the congressional baseball practice. He was hospitalized for months, but he returned to work last fall with the nation watching his recovery. Uh, so he is another who is in um, in the running. Scalise has said he would uh, not challenge McCarthy for speaker, but he told Politico last month that he might run under the right circumstances. I wouldn't rule it out. Scalise told Politico, "Obviously, I've shown interest in the past uh, at moving up." Well, uh, on the um, on the uh, Democrat side, of course, there are the, the caucus is looking at uh, speaker's race as well as the likelihood that the Democrats will retain will um, rest control of the House from the Republicans. Many expect to House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi to try to reclaim the Speaker's gavel, which she held for two years, starting in 2008. But the 78-year-old San Francisco Democrat is a polarizing figure. Republicans have made her their, boon, their boogeyman in the 2018 elections, and many Democrats think the party needs new and perhaps younger leadership. There's no shortage of other House Democrats also interested. Steny Hoyer, um, Maryland Democrat, he's been Pelosi's number two for 15 years, so he would be a natural successor by seniority. Hoyer has a loyal following within the Democratic caucus, thanks to years of work getting lawmakers plum committee assignments, voting uh, votes on legislation and so on. But as a 78 year old from the East Coast, uh, he may not represent the change in leadership the Democrats are looking for. Then there's South Carolina Representative Jay, uh, James Clyburn, the number three Democrat in the House. And uh, as a Southerner and the highest ranking African-American in Congress, he could help the party build its strength as Democrats seek to make inroads to traditionally GOP ter- territory, in part by increasing turnout among black voters. But Clyburn is also in his late 70s. He's been in Congress for more than two decades, so he may not be Uh, the right choice there either. Representative Joseph Crowley, a New Yorker who chairs the Democratic caucus, has also been positioning himself as a possible Pelosi successor. Like the other candidates, um, the other contenders, he's been uh, raising money for his party, campaigning for Democratic challenges uh, across the country. And at 56, he could satisfy the demand for a younger leader, even though the 10-term Democrat is not exactly a fresh face there. And as with the GOP field, lesser-known Democrat contenders could also emerge. Representative Tim Ryan out of Ohio, for example, mounted a long shot challenge to Pelosi Um, after the 2016 elections. uh, Ryan has continued to press his argument that Democrats need to reconnect with blue collar middle America and that electing a Midwesterner to to the speaker's post would help in that um, effort. So that's those are the battle lines that are likely to be drawn, although I have no doubt there are others who will also be uh, contending for that position. Well, President uh, Trump signed an executive order yesterday to, that aims to add and strengthen work requirements for public assistance and other welfare programs, something like what we saw under the Clinton administration. The order signed in private promotes common sense reforms that policy advisors Andrew Brimberg said would reduce dependence on government programs. Part of the president's efforts to create a booming American economy includes moving Americans from welfare to work and supporting and encouraging others to support common sense reforms that restore America and prosperity and help them reclaim their independence, he said. Again, that's Andrew Bremberg, a policy policy advisor. The order focuses on looking for ways to strengthen existing work requirements and exploring new requirements for benefits such as food stamps, cash and housing assistance programs. The president has accused beneficiaries of abusing government assistance programs, and he's claimed many have no uh, intention of working, uh, make to make more benefits uh, than those with jobs. I know people that work three jobs and they live next to somebody who doesn't work at all. And the person who is not working at all and has no intention of working at all is making more money and doing better than the person that is working. Um, I won't use all of the words that were used there, but nonetheless that executive order signed by the president on Tuesday, what that means in terms of policy uh, still needs to be, uh, thoroughly explained. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from a couple of Christian schools in our community that are offering tuition discounts to give you a glimpse of what you'll find at listenersavings.com. Discounts of up to 40%. Check it out.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, I'm delighted that we are featuring a number of Christian schools in our community as part of our School Tuition Listener Savings Program and wanted to focus our attention today on North Clackamas Christian School. Now, at North Clackamas Christian, they partner with Christian parents in providing students with a biblically-based education, and they pursue excellence not only in spiritual but also academic, artistic, and athletic programs training young people to serve Christ daily, and I'm delighted to have with us now the administrator and superintendent of North Clackamas Christian, Tim Tutty, and uh, to give you an opportunity to learn a little bit more. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, thank
3: you, Josie. It's a pleasure to be on the on the air.
1: Well, let's begin by giving you an opportunity to tell our listeners why they should consider North Cl- uh, North Clackamas Christian School in Oregon City for their sons and daughters or grandkids.
3: Well, we're a, uh, a small, private Christian school. We've been around since uh, 1973, quite a long time. Um, and we provide uh, a college preparatory education. We're a pre- preschool through 12th grade. Um, our program has been growing, but our class sizes are small. Uh, we do focus on, uh, on the spiritual aspect as much as we do the academic. We do train kids to serve Christ daily. So we found that um, this has been a place that uh, many of these children thrive in. Uh, they have, um, right now we have uh, parents and grandparents who went here originally when the school started and their grandchildren are still going mm. here. So uh, we're really excited about uh, the direction this school is going. And we're very proud of our programs, our teachers and our students.
1: I know for a lot of parents and grandparents, the concern is if I send my child to a private school, are they going to get the kind of academic rigor that we're looking for or that we might expect in a public school setting? How does North Clackamas Christian compete in that area?
3: Well, first of all, we're a standards-based school, so we we uh, design our curriculum and our instruction on, on um, academic standards. Many of our teachers are actually from the public school system. We've hired them out of public schools, and they have been trained. All of our teachers are certified, and most have a master's degree. Um uh, our curriculum is, is very carefully designed. As I mentioned, it's a, a college preparatory program at the college at the high school level, but that does not necessarily mean that all of our students go on to college. Mm-hmm. The majority do, of course. But uh, you know, we found that they are we our programs are very strong. We've we've had national merit scholars here, we've had uh, people who've gone on and done very well in college and university. So um yeah, it's it's a great school to send your child. It's uh and it's a wonderful Uh, program in terms of their spiritual growth and and development.
1: Well, that's the next question I wanted to ask you. The the name of the school is North Clackamas Christian School. And obviously, uh, parents are concerned about how uh, the Christian faith is going to be included in the academic program. So talk a little bit about how the Christian faith is communicated in regular classes and extracurricular activities and how that emphasis is made.
3: Well, first of all, uh, we're a discipleship school. That's a little bit different from many of our Christian schools around I like here. Discipleship school, you know, it's it's basically uh, designed when we when we bring families in, uh, and they express an interest. We always bring them in for an interview, and uh, we uh, expect our families to have a faith based testimony before they even begin here. And that's very important because it sets a common theme, a uh, common direction. Uh, for their children. It also really uh, enhances the the communication that goes on between parents and staff and students. So our classes are um, integrated fully with uh, Bible Truth. Uh, Children, from the time they start in preschool or kindergarten, they have Bible every day, a certain portion of Bible every day. Uh, Through junior high and high school, they take regular Bible classes, Old Testament, New Testament, Apologetics. Um, We have chapel once a day or once a week, excuse me, uh, at both our elementary and secondary programs. So it's pretty, pretty heavily integrated with uh, with with scripture and Bible all the way through. We we open our day each day with prayer and we close with prayer. So it's a wonderful place to be if you're a Christian parent.
1: Mm. And I love the emphasis on working with parents and continuing what these young people are presumably getting at home because this is a household committed to faith.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really the focal point of our school. We pride ourselves in being academically focused, and our students do quite well on ACTs and SATs when they're ready to go on to the next stage. But our real emphasis really is on building and helping children and students to learn to serve Christ in their daily life. Beyond high school, beyond, you know, as they go through life, that is our primary focus. And I think we're fairly successful in that.
1: Now, one of the things I often hear when uh, people are talking about uh, private Christian education is that they're concerned that their child isn't going to have some of the experiences they had, for example, in athletic competition or exposure uh, to the arts. But North uh, Clackamas Christian School really provides a fine arts program and classes and opportunities for athletic competition. Competition. That rival, I think, uh, anyplace else. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of the school.
3: Oh, absolutely. We have a, a wonderful co-curricular program. Uh, in our sports program, we have uh, three sports in the fall. We have cross-country, soccer for girls and boys, volleyball. Our winter program is basketball. And in the spring, we have track and baseball And last year was our first year of baseball. We actually teamed up with another local Christian school, country Christian, to to form a team. But we compete at the 1A and 2A level. Uh, In music, uh, we have two wonderful instructors, highly trained. We have a a great band and choir program. Our, Our choir program actually has won the 1A, 2A state championship two years in a row now, and they're headed for their third try this year. Um, they also have participated in the uh, singing Christmas tree for the last couple of years. So they and I a have lot enjoyed them every year. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're wonderful. We we enjoy And they are ambassadors for our school, quite honestly. They spend a lot of time in the community. Uh, not just entertaining, but also spreading the word about our school and what it's about.
1: Well, we're excited because uh, we are partnering with Christian schools in our community, including North Clackamas Christian School, and right now, North Clackamas is extending some tuition discounts for kindergarten, elementary school, and junior high, and we would encourage you to go to the website Mm -hmm. kpdq.com to learn more about um, these savings. If you've thought about sending a son, daughter, or grandson Mm -hmm. or daughter to a private Christian school in Oregon City, we would encourage you to check out North Clackamas Christian School and find out what kinds of uh, discounts you can enjoy through this uh, this program. Uh, also, I would encourage you to go to the website to learn more about uh, North Clackamas Christian School. They're located in Oregon City. You can check them out online at ncchristianschool.com. That's ncchristianschool.com or uh, phone 503-655-5961 503-655-5961 Now, for any parents listening, who are interested in learning more, perhaps visiting the campus or talking with you or someone there, what's the best way for them to do that?
3: Well, the best way is probably to check our website. Uh, That gives you a lot of information. But beyond that, just giving us a call because we uh, give tours here. We'll let their children shadow one of our classes for a while if they want to. And we have a coordinator here that will meet with them and answer questions. I'll be here I generally meet with all the new parents before they even do the interview. So there's a lot of opportunities, and we're open year-round. Other than two weeks during summer and, and during the regular holiday times, we are here. We accept students and parents all year long. So you can just pop in. Give us a call first, and we can give you the grand tour and answer your questions.
1: Again, that website is uh, nchristianschool.com, nchristianschool.com, or the number 503-655-5961. Well, I am so um, grateful for your commitment to children in the Oregon City area, in our community, training them up in the way that they should go, partnering with parents and sharing their faith uh, with these young people so that they do live a, a, a Christian life that is integrated. From their early days right up through adulthood. And uh, again, I appreciate your commitment uh, to serving.
3: Well, thank you, Georgine. I appreciate it.
1: It's a real pleasure. Again, Tim Tutty is the administrator, superintendent at North Clackamas Christian School in Oregon City. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: It has been a real delight for me as we are focusing on our listener savings, in which some of the Christian schools in our community are offering uh, tuition discounts to highlight and feature some of these schools that are doing extraordinary work in our community. Today, we're going to talk with Angie Taylor, who is the head of school at Valor Christian School International, and they're located in the Beaverton area, uh, in Living Home, uh, Living Hope, rather, Fellowship Church. And I am just delighted once again to draw our attention to uh, the leaders that they are developing and training at Valor Christian School International. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgie, and I appreciate the invite. Now, Valor Christian is a, it really was a dream of yours for some 20 years before God opened the door for this school to uh, to open its doors.
4: Yeah, that's that's actually really true. Having been a part of education, both public and private, for about 24 years, Really started seeing some gaps in the system that I felt like we could address in uh, more innovative ways.
1: Now, let's talk about what sets Valor Christian School International apart from some other schools in the community uh, because you all are doing some very unique things.
4: We are actually, we're in, in fact, it's interesting that uh, the timing of this call is great. We are just getting ready. Uh, Next week to launch our high school students literally all over the world. We have a team going to India, a team going to the Philippines, a team going to Haiti, and then a team staying local here in downtown Portland to do both education work as as well as missional work.
1: And that really is a stream that runs all the way through uh, valor christian School International, whether we 're talking about the high school students who are going abroad or ministering here at home, but also they 're responsible and in helping to train and involve the younger students as well
4: correct and, uh, the school itself k through twelve is all really focused on how do we add value, how do we contribute to the community? around us as well as abroad. I think at the end of the day, what I kept finding was running into people that loved the idea of being part of something bigger, helping community, helping, you know, on a global scale, but really didn't know how to do that. And at the end of the day, as a parent, by the time you've worked, you go home, help your kid with homework and do their after school sport, what you find is there's just not enough time or money So our thought with Valor is how do we uh, put our community on mission as a whole and and make it one place to come where we can all engage on mission? One of the distinguishers of our school is we are a one-to-one school, which Mm -hmm. means for one tuition we're sponsoring a student in a developing nation into education. And so what that means is right now we have um, 92 kids in Kenya being sponsored into education, 80 kids in Haiti. 80 and uh, 70 kids in the Philippines receiving education that didn't have access to education prior to Valor starting.
1: And each of your students is paired with a student in need of education in one of those areas of the world.
4: Correct. Correct. Remarkable. We do a lot of Skype phone calls. It really is about global relationship. Uh, This year, the new thing for us this year is we actually started a mirror campus in South Korea and. Um, started an exchange program with those students. So we've had our students on their campus for 12 weeks and their students on our campus for 12 weeks. So it really is a global community um, in every sense of the word.
1: I know that Valor Christian School International is focused on developing confident, creative, wise Christ followers and leaders. Let's talk about um, the academic rigor as well as the focus on a Christ-centered education
4: sure I, when it comes to the academics you know we we've really taken our lead from both Harvard and Stanford in their recent research that's coming out that um no longer is it acceptable simply just to go after rote memory or to have our students you know our students know at the core of them that they can study for a test for 3 hours memorizing content that in 2 seconds they can google or they can youtube the answer to and mm-hmm. so It's incumbent upon us to understand the lay of the land for our students. The statistics right now tell us that about 65% of the jobs that will exist um, currently don't exist for the kids in elementary school. And it's essential with the development of technology and AI that we start preparing our kids to think critically about how are we leveraging information and using it in meaningful and applicable ways in new ways. So our approach is very innovative. However, we can support our approach with a lot of data and research.
1: Uh, again, uh, just an excellent approach. I know that you really emphasize that your students understand that God has a plan and purpose for their lives, that they would discover that passion and gifting, uh, and that they would take the lead in their chosen profession. Let's talk about the the aspect of their, the Christian faith that is a part of the, uh, the education at Valor Christian School International.
4: One of the things that's been really concerning to me in the Christian community that I've seen and, and am personally guilty of is... That idea that we 're we are hearers of god 's Word, not doers of god 's mm-hmm. word, and um, you see that a lot in the education and training of our kids where we 're doing a great job of telling our kids about the Bible and having them memorize the Bible, but where are we asking them to put into practice and giving them opportunities to train? Them to be transformers of culture. You know where are Jesus at at while he was here on earth was a disruptor. He was constantly making bridges and pathways for people to come to know him. And it's imperative that we prepare our students with a testimony on their lips, but also give them opportunities to serve, to minister, to be action-oriented in their faith. And so that's a key element of who we are. But what we try to do, and um, our our students take strength finders tests where we really try to engage them in their unique individual skill sets and calling Um, in order to be effective in kingdom work.
1: We're talking with Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian School International. They're located at Living Hope Fellowship Church in Southwest Beaverton. And I know that one of the reasons that we are focusing on Christian education is that there's a a, a rare opportunity uh, to do a little saving on tuition. And in this case, uh, the high school tuition, there's a discount there. And our listeners can find out more at listenersavings.com. But for parents who are interested in... And what you've just described is, a, is academic rigor with a Christ-centered focus and a, a missional emphasis, and they want to learn more. What's the best way for them to do that?
4: Well, there's a couple of ways they can do that. First, we would love to invite them to take a tour on our campus, meet our staff, have their student shadow on our campus. They can also check us out at ballerschool.org. Uh We also have a Facebook presence that would give you a good flavor and feel for who we are as a school.
1: Again, that's valorschool.org uh, and the Facebook page just Valor School. Yeah, Valor School International. Valor School International. Well before we uh, end our conversation, let me just give you an opportunity to speak to our listeners. why should they consider their sons, daughters, grandchildren, uh, why should they consider rather Valor Christian School International for them?
4: Well, I think this I think we're handing our world our kids a world in crisis. and if we are not equipping and empowering them, to step into those places to solve problems then we're not preparing them well for the world that we're handing them the the reality is is in knowing Jesus we have wisdom from the very throne room of God and because of that our ability to speak light and to speak truth into the places in the world into some of the most major crises of this world is pretty profound and i think it's imperative that everyone's child is part of a school that is actively engaged in equipping and empowering their child to step into their place, their
1: God-given place in the world. And Valor's Christian School International is certainly a place just like that. Well, Angie Taylor, thank you for the work that you're doing in educating young people and for taking the time to talk with us today.
4: Thank you. We appreciate the time.
1: Appreciate it very much. Again, Valor Christian School International, their website, ValorSchool.org, or on Facebook, Valor School International, um, uh, there. Now, you can also go to listener ListenerSavings.com, and there you're going to find a list of um, tuition discounts. Valor School, they've sold out on a couple of them. They still have tuition discounts. I believe two of them available for their high school tuition, and you can learn all the important details about that at listener savings com
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It is aired on 93.9KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you in light of the last two segments, that there are still uh, tuition discounts available, and uh, to avail yourselves of, them, you need to go to kpdQ.com. We still have tuition discounts available for Northwest Heritage Academy. Western Mennonite School, West Hills Christian School, Valor Christian School, and North Clackamas Christian School, two of them you heard from earlier today. So check that out, listenersavings.com. Christian education for your child might be more possible than you thought. Well, it broke my heart in, in view of all of the controversies that are swirling around us. Um, uh, that Christianity Today confirmed that Bill Hybels has now stepped down as senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. That's the Chicago area megachurch he founded some 40 years ago, citing the controversy over some recent allegations against him. And I don't bring this up to to um, uh, discuss salacious details of what may or may not have happened, but to remind us that we need to be praying for those who are in authority as well as holding Those in uh, positions of authority accountable. Many of the wider Christian community have been confused by the allegations he said in a meeting in which he announced his uh, decision to retire. He said the controversy has distracted his church leaders from their mission and has hurt the church's ministries. They can't flourish to their fullest potential when the valuable time of our leaders is divided. He previously planned to retire in October. But he revealed the news uh, Tuesday night at a family meeting where about a thousand Willow Creek members gathered at the multi-site church's flagship, South Barrington, Illinois, campus. The crowd listened in silence as their longtime pastor began to read a 12-minute long prepared statement, then groaned in disappointment when he confirmed what so many of them had feared. Several voiced... Uh, voices shouted no across the 7,000-seat auditorium, where 1,000 members were seated. Hybels will also leave the uh, Board of Willow Creek Association. It's a network of thousands of churches around the world. It will no longer host Willow Creek's globally uh, Global Leadership Summit Rather, in August. Um, this, too, was my decision and mine alone, he said. Well, Hybels was strongly denied, the uh, or has strongly denied, the pattern of misconduct that former Willow Creek staff members recounted in an investigation that was published three weeks ago by the Chicago Tribune and covered by Christianity Today. At the family meeting, he repeated his denial, saying, I've been accused of many things I simply did not do, but let me acknowledge things I have done. I confess to anger at the accusations. I sincerely wish my initial response had been listening and humble reflection. I apologize to you, my church, for a response that was defensive instead of inviting learning, end quote. In last month's Tribune article, Heibel's called the accusations flat out lies and accused a group of former colleagues, including two prominent former staff pastors, of colluding against him to ruin his reputation. Well, yesterday he told the audience that I realize now that in certain settings and circumstances in the past, I communicated things that were perceived in ways I did not intend at times making people feel uncomfortable. I was blind to this dynamic for too long. Uh, For that, I am sorry. I placed myself in situations that would have been far wiser to avoid, he said. I was naive about the dynamics those situations created. I'm sorry for the lack of wisdom on my part. I commit to never putting myself in similar situations again end quote. Well, Heibel said he would withdraw to consult with counselors and reflect on what God is teaching him. I have taken these allegations seriously, as have our church elders, he said. Some have been misleading and some have been false, but I have been sobered by these allegations and I am inviting counsel to help me sort through these in the days ahead. Well, after the period of reflection, Hybels plans to return to the church as a member of the congregation. Willow will always be my church home, he said, departing to a standing ovation. Pam Orr, who's the Willow Creek's elder board said we accept and see the wisdom of this decision. She said that the church's work will continue without its founder. We will not give up doing the work called us to do. Willow Creek members knew big news was coming when the church called the midweek gathering just a day in advance. Some held out hope that Hybels had been able to reconcile with those bringing accusations against him or even that evidence had been found to disprove the claims but most saw the resignation coming. As uh, Steve Carter, the church's new teaching pastor, prayed over Hybels and the family. Uh, and the church's elders at the end of the gathering, more in the crowd, arms extended to the stage, began to cry. One uh, who has been a member of Willow Creek since 1986 couldn't hold back tears as she described the evening. I knew that Hybels would step down, she said. I just feel so broken hearted. When the news broke last month, I believed him and I also knew that people coming forward uh, with concerns. She went on to say, I felt in my heart there was a misunderstanding. Well, former leaders have accused the church of failing to adequately addressed several allegations against the former pastor, including inappropriate comments, private meetings with female staffers in uh, his uh, hotel rooms and at his home, intrusive hugs and in one case, an unwanted kiss. Among those raising concerns was uh, Nancy Beach, the first female teaching pastor at Willow Creek, Betty Schmidt, the longest serving lay elder in the church, John and Nancy Ortberg, former teaching pastors at Willow Creek and longtime friends of Bill and Lynn Heibels, and former Willow staff members Leanne Mulatto, whose husband San Diego Jim Mulatto was the longtime head of the WCA and is current president of Compassion International. The church's elders have defended their uh, their senior pastor, citing three investigations into Uh, Hybels that found no misconduct. And they also denounced the Tribune report in an email to the congregation saying it was based on false allegations resulting from a campaign by a group of former church members who want to damage the reputation of the church and our senior pastor. I won't go on from there. There's uh, certainly more individuals who've made comments uh, on either side of the equation. What we do know now is Bill Hybels, who is the founder of the church, has pastored for 40 years, is stepping aside under a cloud that is broadened beyond the church itself but to the broader culture and that there is a congregation that extends uh, beyond one single group of people meeting at one location but a number of congregations under the Willow Creek heading and others associated with it through its leadership uh, summits and other uh, ministries that are also being directly affected and it is a reminder to all of us the frailty of the human flesh whether the accusations are true or not I cannot say whether or not the uh, the um, uh, critics are Uh, credible or not, I I can't say. What I can say is that we, the church, are extremely vulnerable. And if we put ourselves in situations, and I know I've I found myself making decisions that on reflection uh, should not have been made, uh, that we need to be very careful about how we conduct ourselves in the broader culture. And certainly the reputation of one individual is less important than the reputation of the body of Christ in general and the reflection on our Lord and Savior more specifically. Uh, we probably are all in one way or another guilty of falling short, Um, But let's hold one another up in prayer. Let's hold one another accountable. And um, hopefully the church will uh, continue to thrive without its leader, that Bill Hybels will will do what's necessary and right for him to address whatever the The central and primary issues are in this controversy, and uh, the the body of Christ will be able to move forward. There is so much that needs to be done. Earlier today, for example, we talked with Joshua Chatra. He's a Ph.D. and the co-author of Apologetics at the Cross, an introduction for Christian witness. Uh, We talked about uh, the meaning uh, and importance of apologetics and how we can share our faith effectively. And we have a a big job to do when you consider the... um, the Great Commission. Um, I just hope we are not uh, distracted as we so easily can be, Um, not only by those uh, whose actions affect us from a distance, but also uh, those closer up. I'm going to be in prayer for Bill Hybels, for the congregation and other churches that are impacted by all of this, that ultimately um, good would come and the right uh, decisions would be made. And for those who Uh, Say that they are victims of some kind of misconduct that the Holy Spirit and others would uh, would help them to deal with uh, with that so that their faith is left intact and similar situations don't happen in the future. Again, just uh, just heartbroken. About the whole thing. By the way, if you didn't have an opportunity to hear my conversation with uh, Mr. Chatraw earlier in the program, you can always go to our podcast. You can go to kpdq.com and you'll find not only that conversation, but the entire program and programs. Uh, from the last several weeks and months as well. So that's a resource. If you missed something, you might have heard a part of it or heard about it uh, after the fact, you can go to the podcast. We try to keep that up to date as much as possible. Sometimes there are slight delays, but you can find that information there again at kpdq.com. Look for the Georgine Rice Show tab and um, all those details can be found there. Well, we um are out of time. Wanna thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing the program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook.